I am Edwin K. Morris, and this is the KM Lobby. We're here to help you find out more and discover what's going on in the world of knowledge management. I am joined by Monica Denise Perrin, based out of England, and Janetta Guele, out of Italy. Together, we are here to explore the world of knowledge management. That sounds cool. I know, it's exciting. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Let's bring together this time for the KM Lobby to talk to Sue Lacey Bryant. So around the horn, we have Janetta in Italy. Hello, Janetta. Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Welcome, Sue, to our KM Lobby. Are you still in Sicily? Where are you? I'm still in Sicily, yes. It's summertime, so I will not change my region for another place. Ah. Well, uh, let's go over to London and talk to Monica. Monica, what's going on with you? Lovely London. Uh, we got some great weather and lots of cool things happening in Land the Down. And I can't wait to start talking to Sue. It's very exciting. It is very exciting because Sue represents... Uh, give me your title again, Sue. I am the Chief Knowledge Officer and National Lead for NHS Knowledge and Library Services in England. That sounds like a pretty big outfit. Yeah. How many people does that represent? So, as Chief Knowledge Officer for Health Education England, which is the bit of the NHS that focuses on education, the workforce for today and tomorrow, we've got about 4,000 staff. But out in the system, where we have 177 libraries, we have 1,200 headcount of staff working there, about 1,000 full-time posts, and then some more people in government agencies that we would call arm's length bodies. I got my job title wrong. So <laughs> 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 did you just get promoted? Yeah, I did, yeah, about a, about a week ago. <laughs> oh, congrats. <laughs> Thank you. I'm the Chief Knowledge Officer for Health Education England, which is the part of uh, the health service that deals with educating the workforce for today and tomorrow. And I'm the National Lead for NHS Knowledge and Library Services out in the system. How old were you when you realized you were going to be this successful? <laughs> um, about last week. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Come on. I, I, I mean, no, in all seriousness. Um, Who in your family said library and knowledge the way to go? You want to know how I got into this, don't you? And then what drove my ambition? Yes. And there are some serious answers to those questions. Please. So, so I was a classic library person, you know, going to the library, actually with my father mostly. And when I was about 14, my dad took me to an exhibition that was hosted at the local library. And it was about the local bus routes. Now, I grew up in Rochester, so for any Dickens fans listening to this, Chatham, Rochester, the Medway towns, you know, Dickens lived there, he wrote the books there, Great Expectations and so on. And when I grew up in Kent, yeah, in the 60s and, and 70s, there were Dickensian pockets of disadvantage and poverty there, and that remains the case. And I looked at these bus routes and what I could see was that actually there were a whole bunch of people who were going to be really disadvantaged by this bus route. And I didn't think they were going around the library looking at the exhibition. And so I saw the connection between information and decision making. And at the same time, there were the Samaritans had just been started by Chad Vara in England, a, a suicide prevention support befriending 
service. And he had become a curate, become a vicar. And the first funeral he took was of a 14-year-old girl who committed suicide after starting her first period. As you start to think about the difference that information and indeed health information is making to people's lives. And then as time went on, I used to help at the library. I, I, I worked in a public library one summer. I started to think that not only did information really matter to decision making, but that probably there was a bit of science behind how you organized it. So I decided to become a librarian really very young, and it is and remains a complete vacation for me. If you're asking me how did I get to this role, the truth of the matter is in my early 40s, I realized that the job I wanted didn't exist. I decided to go and ask some people if they would give me a bit of their time and give me their thoughts and their advice, you know, what routes might be open. And I had a choice at the time to go and do a bit of time in industry. I went to work for a provider, a website provider called Doctors Net UK. But I went, basically, I went to see three or four people and, and one of them, you know, a senior person in the NHS, it won't do you any harm to go out and work in private industry, it'll be fine. Somebody else said, would, you know, if I gave you a job here, would you want to do it? And it was somewhere incredibly prestigious in England, actually the Bodleian Library. And I didn't say yes. You know, I heard myself not say yes. Uh, and so you keep thinking there's something else going on here that I, you know, so yeah. I think I, I had a bit of a star I wanted to follow. I, I got frustrated that I was providing evidence to people and I could see it wasn't being used. And so I became interested in the human factors of change and I became interested in quality improvement and leadership and management and change. You've walked us through a few years here of your progression, but let's go back to that time at the library. What was the impression? You, you said that the ability to see not innovation, but just connections to be able to see where disconnects and connections are is almost that visionary entrepreneurship, inquisitive mind. Where did you get that? I mean, did you just land on the earth like that? Or what sparked your inquisitive mind? The curiosity. Right. Oh, I think Sunday lunch in our house. Janetta is in Sicily. I was born in Malta, very close by. We happened to just be there for a few years. But it, a Sunday lunch in my house would start, you know, about 1230 and it would end at about... 6.30 and we'd have all sat, you know, I'm the youngest of four children and my parents had had no opportunity around education. My mother left school at 14. My father was a, a looked after child, what we would call a cared for child. You know, he was raised in an orphanage, the Shaftesbury Homes in, okay. in England. And they were passionately curious and they believed in education, education, education. And they were I know, I know even at the time, even at the time in the 60s and the 70s, they were considered quite bohemian. They really weren't. They looked, I mean, I thought they, I didn't <laughs> think they were. But you could talk about, you could talk about anything in our house. I mean, if you weren't having a conversation about sex, politics or religion, what earth would you be talking about? So when I met my in-laws, that was a whole other story, but that's not uh, what we're here to yes. discuss today. <laughs> so culturally, you were given an opportunity to question everything. Wow. Yes. Actively encouraged to do that. And politically as well. Well, thank you for walking us through that initiative, that cultural setting that made you who you are. I'm going to hand the reins over to Monica. Thank you. 
I think that's it's fascinating to hear your your story uh, and how you got to where you are today. And with some of the audience, could you give us a bit of an explanation as to what the NHS is? What exactly does the NHS do? And it's quite a cultural part to the UK as well. Yes. We, we have a lot of feelings when we talk about the NHS. We do. So. We yeah. do. It's probably the most revered institution in the NHS in England. So it's a very complex organisation. Um, the, the employment level ranges between 1.2 and 1.4 million, depending on fashion around how you're employing certain sorts of contractors with specialist knowledge. We have a passionate belief in universal healthcare in England, in the UK and are immensely proud of it. And certainly through the years when I've opened conversations or been had the privilege of being in conversations with people, particularly in the States, actually, people will often start with that conversation because it does mean a very different approach. You know, the fact that you are going to pick everyone up off the street and care for everyone who comes through your door creates uh, something of which people in certainly in England are enormously proud. It also creates a loyalty amongst the staff that, you know, this shared value, this being a really important place to which to bring your skills. But it is, of course, not a single thing. It is very, very many different organisations, hundreds of different trusts, many of which are acute hospitals, but also mental health hospitals and community trusts, a whole set of governance layers, both at regional level, at national level. So at the moment, uh, we've just had new legislation bringing in a new new Health and Care Act. We're creating our country into 42 integrated care systems. So trying to address that complexity that you've talked about, Monica, by bringing people together around a common sense of place, actually, 42 places multiple provider organizations working to them, a slight shift in the way that we do commissioning, which is the the buying of healthcare being within that piece. And it creates new opportunities for collaboration. It creates new opportunities for knowledge and library services and our services to work together. So at the moment, for example, because I work in the organization that looks at education, we have 244 trusts that provide placement training for healthcare professionals, whether that's nurses, doctors, allied health professionals, physios, whatever. They are served currently by 177 NHS knowledge and library services, predominantly based in those trusts. We are actively expanding that workforce so that we're putting now knowledge managers into primary and community care to support training and really making a big push to get knowledge managers into integrated care services hold that thought and invite me back in a few months and I'll tell you more about that. I was just about to ask, how are you going to put a common approach in place with all of these different bodies, uh, you know, mental health areas? You know, how are the, knowledge, are the knowledge teams actually using a framework, a common approach to actually yeah. roll some of that work out? So bear in mind that they're autonomous and if they're listening, they really want me to know and hear that they are autonomous and they work to their employer to meet locally set objectives and that's really important. The financial deal is that roughly, roughly a bit over half of the money comes through from our organisation, which is about the education and training of the workforce. And and roughly half of that money comes at provider level. 
I guess this is the point that brings me. This was the piece, really, Edwin. This is what I wanted to do, I guess, was come and work with people around the system and say, what should the strategy look like for developing these services in a sustainable way that meets the needs of the 21st century? Because I'd had this privilege and, and I guess, taken the risks of coming out of a conventional career path, and I had the privilege of learning about quality improvement techniques and leadership, what actually happened was when this body was starting to look at what it wanted to do, they reached out and invited me in to come and advise on strategic development. I came into this role originally appointed as a strategy advisor. And what we did was, first of all, look at what was our vision. What did we want this to be like? And if I summarize what we want it to be like, is that the right information and knowledge is used by the right people at the right time. And that's right across NHS bodies, their staff, learners, patients, and the public. And why? Because it is about, you know, really closing that gap between the evidence base and our experience. So if I give you some figures around that, because you asked about my why around how I came into the profession, but you know, my why around why healthcare, you know, if I take a study that's published by Hardcastle, for example, based on longitudinal data over a population of 16,000, cohort of 16,000 people over 50, with one or more of four long-term conditions. Now, if you rock up to a local hospital now while we're sitting here and we hear the sirens go by and you're going in with a cardiovascular problem, that's really sexy. And your chances of having good quality care that would match what we would seem deem to be indicators of high quality care would be something like 87%. If you rock in with osteoarthritis, which frankly, we're all going to get, it's about 38%. Now, which of us wants to be in the 62% for our arthritis? And which of us wants to be in the 13% for our heart condition? And who wants that to be their mother, father, brother, loved one? So that gap, you know, is persistent. You can impact only on different conditions, but it's a reality. And then alongside that, what the data tells us about healthcare is that about, it's the same in the States, Australia, everywhere, and this is a perennial thing, about 60% of it broadly, you know, is spot on. It's evidence-based. About 30% of it is pretty wasteful. It's probably not doing much good. And 10% of it is potentially harmful. If librarians and knowledge managers don't have something to bring to that business, you know, what are we here for and what are our skills for? So that's my why in the system. So to go back to what did I do, I wanted to create a vision for what this would be like. And I brought a lot of people together. I listened to all of us. I mean, there was a, there was a team of about 15 people to whom I was invited to work with, all fantastic colleagues. They think some of them can retire, but we get them all back. So, you know. <laughs> so there was this group of people who were working this through. And, and we listened to, you know, we took feedback from the libraries, all user surveys, all the user studies. We went through all that data for the last two years. What were people in the system telling us they wanted? And then we went to talk to stakeholder groups across Health Education England and said, what did they think they needed? So a strategic view, wants, needs, and what library and knowledge specialists, managers working in libraries, people at the front desk in libraries, so we brought all that together. There has never been any discontent around 
that core vision, right knowledge, right evidence, right place. Everybody gets that. Then we use strategic planning tool. We use driver diagrams. So it's a very visual. We broke it down into a number of work streams. And then from that, we have taken it through. Now, we're now in the middle phase. I, actually, we wrote it for 15 years. The first strategy was published 2015 to 20. We're now partway through the second strategy, 2021 to 2026, showing the progress on all those things. It's developing as we see new technology coming into play, of course. And then what we did was lean back and say, well, imagine a seesaw, which is a balance between compliance and commitment. You know, my discretionary effort and my compliance. So my passion about the right knowledge and the right evidence, you know, that's sitting good on one side of that seesaw. On the other side, how about we put some things in our education contract between Health Education England and the trust in which they're working, which says you've really got to have a, a really good knowledge and library service that's proactive. And you've really got to have a way of making sure that everybody who comes to work in your organization, all your new learners, learn about clinical decision support systems and know how to register for that and, and are introduced to using it, you know, contractual compliance. And we just worked that through. And over the last seven years, we've built up many more of those catalysts or levers for change that will help influence. I've got one question. I'm sorry, Monica, but you're, you're talking about all the superstructure that you are facilitating an evolutionary step forward in a very broad way, but I'm not hearing what skill set do you need now in your general people? What What is the one thing you've got to make sure these folks can do? So it's more than one, and that's the challenge. And, the, and that richness of what the profession is mm. really challenges people because at the one end, if you're going to be effective in determining knowledge management solutions now, you need people who can do good procurement, actually, and manage contracts and vendors. But you also need people who can understand how to integrate, who can work really well with health informatics guys, the techies. How are we going to embed solutions into an electronic medical record system in a way that doesn't drive you nuts by two in the morning because you've had ping, ping, ping down your wire all the day, but actually can really inform the risks you're taking, the decisions you're making. So there's something about really being able to understand what's needed, evaluate those products, buy those products, work with others to get them integrated at one end of the spectrum. Right across at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who need really great facilitation skills so that you can take your learning from the first implementation or the first tranche of that implementation and really get those lessons out so that A, you get the next round right and better and b you talked earlier about um where are we from you know what happens if you drew a map of great innovation in england and italy and america <laughs> you know you'd see some great innovation you could put little flags on the map and then count to yourself how long it takes to go 10 miles up the road to the next hospital so this piece of understanding knowledge transfer and then knowledge translation into practice is absolutely fundamental. And that is a whole set of knowledge, skills, 
and tools and techniques. So when we first started working with our specialist workforce, our 1200, you know, they didn't think they did knowledge mobilization. They didn't think they did it. It wasn't a language. I mean, it's not a language that helps, is it? So actually teasing out what it means. Now, I, I use a language because I'd worked in primary care, one of our commissioning buying organizations before. I'd, I'd had to try and translate this stuff to real people a long time ago. And we'll see if it works for you. So I turned it into an ABC and then I added a D. So A is about applying knowledge. B is about building know-how. C is about continuing to learn. And then I added D, which was innovation, driving innovation, because I realized that this spread and adoption, getting a project right, having something really good in one place is not the answer for a complex system like the NHS. As we think about our knowledge mobilization stuff, we're working at different levels. But your question around how are we upskilling our own workforce? So we're upskilling them in tools and techniques and facilitation tools and techniques in knowledge management and knowledge mobilization in creating a community of practice around knowledge management where they can learn from each other. So somebody comes along and says, my guys want an institutional repository to help us build our QDOS, our reputation as a research organization, which will help us recruit good staff and retain good staff. So there's a lot of good reasons for doing these things. And then we can say to them, well, People down there have built an institutional repository, have a look at how they're doing it. And then, of course, over time, we can work with the British Library when they do something really extravagant in the sense of being exciting Mm -hmm. and large across the country, very cost effective, not extravagant financially, (laughs) and start to feed things in. So there's a lot of skills around knowledge management, a lot of skills around what we would call knowledge mobilization. So really making it move, knowledge transfer, knowledge translation. But also, if our health service is to retain this universal provision of care, we need to forge a different relationship with our residents and our citizens. And at the other end of this, there is how do we upskill you and I on the street, down the road, my neighbours, to be able to use what are increasingly digital health services, understand health information, share making decisions. So we're doing another strand that needs to come in alongside the mobilizing evidence and knowledge strand is the strand around health and digital literacy. And then alongside that, time waits for no man. And we are right in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution here. And we can pretend that this stuff's going to come later. You know, it's going to be later. We'll make these decisions later. Well, that's not later when you're going shopping on Google, is it? And it's not later when you're booking your holiday and all the other things that you'll be doing on the net or your or your digital sat-nav. Mm. So if we can have a digital sat-nav in the car, are we going to have a clinical decision support sat-nav at You work? brought us right to the brink of where Janetta is going to take over. Um, I understood a little bit your chem strategy, your operative plan, but I would like to, to go deeper a little bit more and give to our audience uh, some practical examples uh, in case they face a challenge, or maybe they are in a situation similar to yours. So what do we share in common between you and me? It's the passion for libraries. So since we were a child, we went to the libraries. From a point of view, it was my first window to the world. And I met a lot of people addressing me to this or the other topic, to this or the other book. But since then, libraries have changed a lot. 
Regarding your past, you spoke about your past, your present, but let's speak a little, a little bit about your future. How do you see the library and the library of your organization changing in the next five or 10 years? And how technology will impact the library services and the knowledge services that your team is providing at national level? Perfect. So the first thing that I think will happen in my sector is that there will be less libraries, or at least there will be much bigger networks and collaborations. And I've seen that trend has started to happen over the last few years. Because You know, if you lay out what it is that you want these services to be able to achieve in the 21st century, you need a sufficient breadth of skills within the team. You can see that from the things I've just talked about. That's a a really big breadth. And that's before you start talking about, have I got someone who can write an API to join one bit of product, one repository to another discovery tool? That's before you start thinking about, hey, we're only really delivering services for probably five and a half days a week maybe eight hours, maybe 10 hours, you know, so 24 seven, what are we going to do? You know, are we going to chase the sun? Am I going to have a service that operates with the States and with Australia? Am I going to use a chatbot? You know, how much content do I need to be able to answer queries, to train the machine learning behind a chatbot to be able to deliver that service? Now to do any of those things at scale, you've got to be bringing together the very best pool of talent. I think you will see a a change in that workforce. I mean, alongside those techie solutions, I think the human interaction between a healthcare team that is seeking to make a decision on behalf of either a single patient or a group of patients, that embedded role, that aligned role where you have a librarian or a knowledge manager closely working with a team has already proven to be very impactful in England where we see that happening. And I think there will be much more of that. So I envisage a workforce where there are far less paraprofessionals, that there will be more people aligned and embedded with teams. I believe there will be more librarians, that policy recommendation from my organisation, and we're making active steps towards investing in that future. I believe that the people we have will cover a very broad range of skill sets and that the breadth and richness of the expertise within the profession will open up more opportunities. I think we should be encouraging our workforce to work more closely with more people around the health informatics side of the agenda. But on the other side, I believe, and again, we're already seeing greater partnership working with information providers in the community so that the expertise that health librarians have in selecting resources, in signposting to valuable, trustworthy resources. Can you give us an explanation of what health informatics is? It's the crossover between information, knowledge management, and computer systems, between the body of the evidence, the skill set, and, and the wires and the tech. Yeah, it's a very interesting position. I understand that because, I, I, in, a more, in a way or another, I covered it. So the future, I think, of knowledge management professionals having a bunch of skill set covering different aspects of different jobs. So the, the employer have to be enough wiser to appreciate this type of professionals. In your in your answer, uh, you touched two points. One was chatbot and machine learning, and the other one is linked to documentation. We are speaking about artificial intelligence, but AI is not for making coffee. It's something more complicated. 
So from your point of view, how artificial intelligence is impacting or will impact your organizations and the library of the knowledge services that you and your team will provide? What we're doing is we're putting our toe in the water and we're experimenting have a number of ways in which we're experimenting. So for example, we're using Iris 6.0, which is an AI tool, to see how far that works well in sifting and searching for information. You know, we've had a whole a whole series of of initiatives. We've used a product called You Know, which will allow you to envisage the searches to, to produce visual maps of the searches that you make. So there's a whole range of different approaches where you can be seeing some of these tools come into play and start to learn from them. They're really about enhancing the search. They don't replace the search, they enhance the search. Mm-hmm. And they give new ways of looking at the content you retrieve, new ways of making connections that you might otherwise not make. Robot Analyst is a tool that NICE, our Institute for Clinical Excellence, which produces guidelines, has used to speed up the initial retrieval process and the sifting process. And obviously, that searching and synthesizing of evidence is really key in our sector. So, uh, you know, there's a number of things out there that we're experimenting. And really importantly, I'm not expecting them all to work yet. I'm expecting us to learn enough to be able to ask good questions of products to be able to meet the need. Where the unique thing about the knowledge specialist is that they understand the needs of users, that they are approached all the time for inquiries, that they can look at their discovery services and see what people are asking for online as well. So this intimate understanding of user need can then be applied to developing the next generation of solutions based on the learning that we've got through putting our toe in the water. Well, in a certain way, you are speaking about documentation because you speak about recruiting new staff and collecting information and creating guidelines, always supported by these new initiatives powered by artificial intelligence. Do you think that the documentation, which is normally seen as a boring task, you know, you have to search and retrieve and classify and codify a synthesis and making a summary, maybe in a, in a friendly format for the end users, will be enhanced by artificial intelligence? Do you think there is the risk that people will be fired because of that? Well, the loss of jobs. Yes. Okay, so there's two or three things I want to pick up on there. The first thing is, It's really easy for people who are interested in the IT and the AI to lose sight of the body of knowledge. Mm. The body of knowledge for medicine is doubling every 73 days. So clearly we have to harness technology to help us manage it and sift it. But everything we have done so far suggests that it needs human verification and human validation to be helpful. And that's a bit like somebody doing an eye scan. You might well introduce AI to read visual scans and they'll do the first scan and a human will do the second, you know. It's important that we value these new technologies and that we're not in denial about them. But actually all it's helping us do is manage this tsunami of content Mm. and rich evidence from research. The work I did with Eric Topol from the States looking at the application of these technologies to healthcare to clinicians really suggests that 
The workforce will change, but jobs won't go. Some jobs will go. Repetitive jobs will go. And it will release time for other work. And actually, it will create work. It will create jobs. And that's my belief, too. So knowledge management really provides value. But... How do you prove to your colleagues and to multiple stakeholders with different needs that knowledge management investment really worth and can push forward your organization through the future? What are your best KPI to prove that? Okay. So my best KPI is that you can release, you can give the gift of time to a cost-benefit ratio of 1 to 2.4. So the benefit of having an expert knowledge specialist searching and retrieving and sometimes summarizing evidence. Actually, it's a higher benefit if they summarize as well. But just finding this gives a benefit of 2.4 to 1. We undertook with a company called Economics by Design a piece of research. Our research report on that is called The Gift of Time. In the last six weeks, taken that data along with a lot of other data and the story of our work to one of our ministers of health and he is certainly very persuaded and asks that we do more work of that kind. What we did was three things. We took him three sets of data plus the story of where we have been and where we want to go with this work. So we took three types of data. We took the health economics report which gives this return of 2.4 that goes up to about 3.5 where it's an embedded librarian Mm -hmm. summarizing evidence as well. But just in terms of the cost saving of a health professional versus somebody who's really good at it, slick at it, reduces good results. So that's a really strong case for the evidence management side from a health economics viewpoint. So I I started a campaign called Hash a Million Decisions. There are more than a million decisions made in the health Mm -hmm. service in England every day. We know that because last November, for example, 1.4 million patients were seen every day in general practice. So, you know, we know that there are decisions being made every day and that figure goes back. When I first started it, we thought it was every 36 hours. Then we thought it was every 17 hours. A lot of decisions are made. That's just in primary care across the health service, hash a million decisions. And we use that to encourage knowledge and library services on the ground to tell their story. And their stories come around patient safety, improving patient safety as a result of searches, improving working lives, improving, reducing length of stay in hospital to which you can attach a cost, introducing new kit, using short length compression stockings versus long length compression stockings. All this stuff has multiple values of which economic value is one. Then we also told a story. We told a story about going to visit a critical care unit which had an embedded librarian and the impact of that person being there, finding there was one case study on one patient with a similar condition, connecting somebody in one part of the world with somebody in the other side of the globe, having a conversation, trying a new treatment, and that person being out of critical care in four days. So we told all three types of evidence. And when people give me those Hashemillion decision stories, and they do, and they're fantastic, I can't thank my colleagues across England in the hospitals enough for all that they do and for then taking the time to tell us about it. Mm. When those stories come in, I always send it back and say, give me numbers, give me numbers, because I need to speak upstairs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Guys, that's wonderful. I'm looking at an article called Value Proposition, The Gift of Time on the NHS website. 
There's a quote in here that says, librarians are probably not the first role that spring to mind when people think about NHS. However, the part they play and the specialist expertise they provide give clinicians some of the most important tools they have to treat patients effectively, information, and time. All That's the it. evidence shows the right knowledge services improve outcomes for patients. Wow. For all those out there that just say, oh, knowledge management, yeah, well, where's the return on investment? Where's that return on it? You know, you're talking cultural things. You're talking HR related behaviors of people and knowledge workers. But what you're doing is you're constructing a mechanism in which you expect people to contribute and share their knowledge. Absolutely. And what we do is we take the heavy lifting out of getting evidence into practice. Well, thank you, Sue. It's been a blast. Any last words to the world? Yeah, come on in. The water's warm. We need you. We need you. Come, come and bring your skills. If you've trained in pharmacy or nursing or management or history or English or biology, anything that has given you critical thinking skills, come and join Interesting. me well thank you sue i love it thank you an inspiration thank you sue most welcome it's been an absolute pleasure to just be able to talk for so much time pleasure's been all ours this wraps up this episode of the km lobby sponsored by pioneer knowledge services thank you for being a part of today's discussions the music was provided by Monologue Rockstars. The name of that piece was At the Restaurant. The executive producer for this show is Janetta Guele. We thank you and we would hope to have you on to talk about your knowledge management journey.